This is More Than Therapy Podcast. More Than Therapy. This is More Than Therapy. More Than Therapy Podcast. This is More Than Therapy. More Than Therapy Podcast. This is... And this is the More Than Therapy Podcast. Today's special guest, Shannon Petrovich. And we're going to talk about dealing with and healing from toxic relationships. Shannon is a therapist, an author, and a YouTube creator who earned her bachelor's degree from Bowden College and her master's in social work from the University of Connecticut. Many of you may know that I'm from New London, Connecticut, so this is one of my favorite schools. She earned her clinical licenses in social work and substance abuse counseling and is a board-certified diplomat in clinical social work. Her new book, Out of the Fog into the Clear, Journaling to Help You Heal from Toxic Relationships, has attained Amazon bestseller status in self-help for abuse, codependency, and personal transformation. And I am so jealous of that. On her YouTube channel, Therapist Talks, she shares insights, information, perspectives, and strategies on a wide range of relationship and mental health topics. With a very trauma-informed, strength-based approach, she seeks to help people see the old stories that are in their way and to fully become the person or persons they were created to be. Today's special guest, Shannon Petrovich, on the More Than Therapy podcast. Ms. Shannon, Ms. Shannon, thank you for being a welcome guest on today's show. I believe your story, your what you bring into the audience today is very much needed. Well, Trauma is a very prominent theme in the addiction community. What did they say? 80, up to 80% of people that have addiction backgrounds or, you know, have addiction issues is somehow linked to trauma in their youth or in their adulthood, I believe. I always thought it was skewed, but the longer I was in the field, I said, yeah, it's pretty accurate, you know? What brought you into the trauma field? What made you focus on trauma? I think that uh, becoming a therapist and deciding that I wanted to be a therapist in my um, early 20s was really about wanting to understand more about what makes people tick really from the inside out really understand the emotions um, around um, what everybody is struggling with, understanding relationships better, understanding how we can feel better about ourselves, about our lives. And, um, and trauma is the base of all of it, whether it's small T trauma or large T trauma or all of the above. You know, I think from family to communities to um, other things that we go through in our lives, everybody experiences at least some small T or large T trauma. And uh, we all we all deal with it in our own different ways. And dealing with it in healthy ways makes all the difference in our lives. Indeed. Trauma is so difficult to treat. At least I, as a therapist, found it very difficult to treat. Because it skews the cognitions. It, it skews their way of seeing the world and how to navigate the world. You working in this field, especially regarding trauma, you probably experience working with people with what they call personality disorders. One of the most prominent ones being what they call person borderline personality disorder. Have you dealt with this, this some diagnosis and have you effectively 
dealt with this diagnosis, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. And, um, you know, all personality disorders run a, a gamut from very mild to very severe. And in the milder forms, I think all of us have dealt with a lot of different personality disorders in the more severe realm, um, fewer than that. And, uh, and borderline personality is one of those really difficult ones, like narcissistic um, personality and others too. And in the borderline personality, I think what is most needed is really healthy boundaries, really healthy communication, very transparent um, and healthy boundaries and communication. Because I think as you're very, um, I think a big part of what I do is, is show up very authentically and help people understand how they're coming across in life and what is in their way and how their old stories really are driving their current dysfunction and their current troubles in their relationships. If you think about borderline as really an attachment disorder run amok for many, many years, then, and you kind of rewind back to the attachment issues that were in childhood and, you know, the attachment, um, different styles are, um, attached or anxiously um, attached. So the anxiously attached are either disorganized or um, uh, uh, avoidant or enmeshed. And so when you think about a borderline, they're in that disorganized where they enmesh and then they disengage completely. So it's that push me, pull you. Um, and when I think you can show up in an authentic way and be present and have good boundaries. I think that's what heals, uh, helps a, a borderline person heal. Indeed. <clears throat> when I started working in, um, in community-based therapy, we worked on a teams called community support team. And it would be like the main therapist and two, um, what they call qualified professionals that would work with the clients as well regarding skill building. And a previous team lead, when I was once a qualified professional, before I took over as a team lead position, when I got my um, license, um, she was like, oh, we would never, ever take on a borderline personality um, disorder client because it's just too difficult to manage and we won't be able to do it within our service parameters, which was six months. And then when I became the team lead and after she went on to a different position and after I got my license, I was like, I'll take on anybody. And if it's not within my scope, <laughs> then I'll refer out, you know, appropriately. But, you know, I, I was dialectically behaviorally therapy trained and got mm -hmm. certified. And I thought, oh, well, I can treat it with this. I'm all, I, there's no way I can be beaten now. I have all the skills and the bills. I found, I found that my success rate in therapy was very, very good until I started taking on borderline personality disorders. And then that success rate quickly plummeted <laughs> now no based on a lot of experiences um the only way i would probably work with that population anymore would be in a group setting like for, with a dialectical behavior mm. therapy group setting if i could have any indication any indication that that's a, a diagnosis that i probably won't do it anymore now that not as a one-on-one not as, on, as a one-on-one -on -one therapist it's just Ooh, this is too it was too complicated and i mean it might be because i'm a male and a lot of times these were females that were referred mm -hmm. by the social services but yeah yeah i know that i know i personally after 20 years i'm done i would never 
Um, but thank you for the work that you do, especially regarding trauma. I know a tool that you use that you focus on a lot of times is journaling. Tell me about the gifts of journaling. So I think journaling can be helpful for a lot of different reasons. And one of the reasons I focus on that in my book is that I really want to help people who may, may be connected to a therapist and they can work the journaling in uh, conjunction with therapy, or they may not have access to therapists. And so they can do it um, if, on their own and with uh, a, a dear friend or somebody else that they trust. But it it's, helps us to really become more conscious of the, the stories and, and issues that we talk to ourselves about quietly inside our own heads all the time. And so I start off with um, helping people to outline the things that they, that basically the relationship they have within their own selves, because a lot of people have a, a very toxic relationship inside their own minds and with their own selves. So if you think about what you say to yourself when you're having a struggle, or if you've made a, a mistake, or you're sad or upset or, or having a hard time, do you beat yourself up? Do you run yourself down? Are you talking to yourself in ways that you would never talk to anyone else uh, uh, in, in, in your life at all? You would never say those things to anyone else in your life. So if you have that toxic relationship within yourself, you have to start noticing that, writing it down, and then asking yourself, where do those messages come from? And if those are old toxic messages from childhood, or from a community experience or from, you know, it isn't a direct message maybe from somebody, but it's how you internalized what was going on in your life in your early years. And when you can notice that and then start to work on who you actually are as a person and your character qualities and your values and how you're living out your values in your everyday life, then that becomes the fodder for, for what how you talk to yourself differently. Um, and then the next part the, of journaling is all about the relationships in your life. So if you have toxic relationships in your life, whether it's with a, a spouse or a partner or a even an adult child or a, a parent or anybody in your life, if you can journal those things out and use your rational mind to walk through what exactly is going on and what happened and how it's playing out, then you can really engage that rational mind and really basically hold yourself accountable to the truth and the facts. Because when we're lost in our emotional mind, that little amygdala, that fight, flight, or freeze, we don't have our rational mind on board. So we have to recognize those two parts of our mind and our emotional mind can be totally uh, enmeshed with and attached to this toxic person our, while our rational mind can say, this isn't good for me. So we have to recognize those two parts. And if we can journal out the facts, uh, we can get hold of those rational facts and it's easier to recognize and make a good decision based on the facts using your wise mind, your rational mind, and then walking it through, making, at, making that decision and, um, and then dragging your emotional mind along um, in a compassionate way, but recognizing you can still love somebody and decide with your rational mind to leave them 
you can decide this isn't healthy and I'm going to get done with this. Indeed, indeed. Um, great, great perspective. How do you change negative internal self-talk to transform the cycles of depression, self-blame, despair, and hopelessness into self-encouragement, hope, progress, and self-compassion? But before you answer that, I want to say something. This year has been a very tumultuous ride for me. If it wasn't the death of my friend who was murdered by her own client, if it wasn't the death of my um, cousin who was turning his life around, but apparently people didn't want him to change in such a way. Or if it was just the fact that cancer is a beast and no matter how old or how young you are, if it gets you, it's going to get you. You know what I'm saying? I found that I had a, a lot of negative self-talk regarding my place in therapy as the fentanyl epidemic here in North Carolina was just taking out clients right, left, right, left, right, left. Clients that even that never even did opiates were dying of fentanyl overdoses because the, the dealers were putting it in cocaine and putting it in the marijuana. A long-term, long-term client who only smoked marijuana overdosed and died on fentanyl. She was 41 years old. Her daughter was at her senior year of school and lost her mom, who only smoked marijuana. And failed. So I thought as a therapist, because, you know, I work in addictions, I was failing. You know what I'm saying? I was very close to approaching burnout because I just was spinning my wheels and I didn't think I was getting anything done. So I, when I ask you this, I'm asking you this for myself. <laughs> I'm so sorry for what you've been through, Chris. That is unbelievable. It's tragic. And I really, really... My heart hurts for what you've been through. It's just awful. And I think it's really hard as a therapist to navigate all of that without getting burned out. And it is something that we all deal with throughout our therapeutic careers. And I've definitely dealt with burnout um, several times in, in a big way. So, um, you know, it's extremely important that you practice the self-care that I'm sure you teach to others. And, um, and that's just a, a really crucial piece that we have to continually, continually look at. So changing that negative internal self-talk really does start with that journaling. Where did this come from? Because so many of us grew up with mixed messages in childhood, and it isn't that anyone was really terrible, um, but that the way we internalize the chaos that was in our, in our world is was toxic and so that can come from the community we grew up in if there's violence if there's chaos if there is um you know any kind of chaos or dysfunction in our families any kind of addiction the the way a kid internalizes that is unique to that kid and so some kids will internalize that as i have to work really hard to take the blame for all of this so that mom and dad can get along better or I have to work really hard to be perfect so everything will be okay or I got to act out really loud and proud so that I can take the focus off of them and take it all on to myself so there's tons of different ways that kids internalize the chaos that's going on in families and typically we internalize it to some degree through negative self-talk. So we're internalizing that, that internal critic 
that blames us and makes us feel despair and hopelessness. And, um, and, and whenever we have any struggles throughout our lives, until we take this out and look at it, we are doomed to keep repeating this over and over and over throughout our lives. So when you take that out and look at it and say, wait a minute, um, I wouldn't talk to anyone else in my life this harshly. Um, I need to change this voice into one of self-encouragement, um, self-compassion, um, you know, the way I talk to my own best friend, I, I, I am always encouraging and, and supportive and, um, compassionate towards my friends. And so I need to start being that to myself and this takes practice. And so, you know, again, you have to journal out the negative and then you've got to journal out the positive, recognizing who you are at in your character qualities and in your values and how you live out your values and how you show up in your life in your authentic self and when we can do that for ourselves it shifts our whole internal world and then it also shifts how we treat ourselves in relationship to other people because if someone else shows up in our lives who's very toxic and talks to us the way we used to talk to ourselves but we've done all this internal work and we're now self-supportive and compassionate towards ourselves and, and encouraging and someone else is being negative. It's like, oh, uh, -uh. <laughs> that is not happening here. So the internal work comes first and then we learn to set boundaries and we learn to um, have good uh, sort of good creepo meter with other people. Indeed, indeed. Let's um, do a quick commercial and then we'll come back on topic. <clears throat> how to continue the talk with your friend about their mental health after you ask about how they were feeling. Put down that phone. Do it. Nobody's texting you. Phone down. Good. Now it's time to listen. If they're not ready to talk yet, check back in later. I'm always here if you want to talk, okay? That was great. Find out how you can help a friend with their mental health at SeizeTheAwkward.org. Awkward. <laughs> right, right, right. <clears throat> Well, the techniques and the strategies, you know what I'm saying, and the perspectives you brought to the table so far have been very, very helpful. Narcissism. It's a diagnosis that I hear thrown around way, way, way too loosely. Sometimes it might even be aimed at me. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt that. <laughs> oh, God, <damn>, my friend. <laughs> but how common, well, before we go into it, into it, you know, tell me, how common is narcissism? You know, it's an interesting thing because people will run the gamut of, of saying, uh, quoting statistics around it. And Honestly, I don't see how in the world anybody could ever count those statistics. I mean, the way we count depression and anxiety is that people show up 
in our offices with depression and anxiety and they build their insurance companies and they show up in hospitals and stuff like that. Well, narcissists do not show up. So there is no way to count them. And I really have to challenge any research research that says that they say that 5% of the population has narcissistic personality disorder. I just don't get how you count that. Um, so I don't, I don't buy it. And I think it is, um, you know, I hear, I, the only time I hear about somebody being a narcissist is usually through their ex-partner or partner. I never That's ever right. have someone present with me and meet the attributes of it. But then again, would I even know it at any given time? Because they're so good at hiding. If they're, they're an actor, they have on this right. cheap clothing over their wolf body in, yeah. in many ways. So they would never show their true self to probably a therapist who they only see an hour every week or so versus the person that they're intimate with or have a relationship with or, you know, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, and, and so it typically, the only time they do show up in a therapist's office is because their partner dragged them there and they decided that they would give it a shot to see if they could manipulate the therapist and win and, and basically become better at manipulating and controlling their partner. And so typically when they do show up, it's, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a game. And in fact, you know, the psychiatrists that I know and work with will say point blank flat out that doing therapy with a narcissist just treat, teaches them how to manipulate better. And you would never, ever want to continue therapy, couples therapy with someone who is being abused by someone else. And so that that's doubly true with a narcissistic partner. You wouldn't want to be the therapist for the couple because you will typically get manipulated. And, um, and if you, if you're not, if you're not buying into their stuff and you, and you call them out and you, um, have their number, then they disappear. And so the best thing to do is really to work with the victim and uh, help them, support them, teach them boundaries and uh, teach them skills to learn how to watch the circus go by, really. Emotionally speaking, I like to teach people how to step back and watch the games that somebody is playing. So if somebody's controlling and manipulating, you know, to watch the different games. Oh, that was gaslighting. Oh, okay. There goes the tears. Oh, now it's anger. Oh, now they're thrown out the guilt trip. Oh, there goes the tears again. Oh, now it's back to the anger. You know, so it's like a smorgasbord of strategies that the person uses to get control and manipulation going. And it's always the same games and they just go round and round. So if you can help somebody step back and watch that and not get sucked into it, then they can start to learn to set boundaries and start to figure out whether the boundaries are going to be effective or whether they need to just flat get out of the relationship. It's been my experience, and let me know if this has also been your experience, that the person who says, let's say they're your client, the victim is your client, and they talk about their spouse or partner who's a narcissist, did you ever see that they kind of fit the puzzle pieces together in order in, to be manipulated, in order to be controlled, in order to be abused in that way? Like they might've had attributes or behaviors that you could see why, or maybe they became that because of the manipulation done by the person who was be deemed known as a narcissist? 
You know, we have to be careful that we don't fall into victim blaming, but there is some part of, um, of if you've grown up in a, in a, a toxic environment, there is some part of familiarity that we do fall into. And so there are, are a few pieces to that. If we sort of have that familiarity with the toxic um, environment from childhood, then we, we kind of come at it with a subconscious feeling of, well, I can handle this, or I know how this works, and I can, I can make this person happy. And sort of that, it's almost a fantasy land of, of del- or a delusion really, of being able to, to handle this. And, and that's a sad thing. And people will say, well, it's just comfortable. No, it's not comfortable. It's miserable. It's awful. It's abusive. Nobody chooses that consciously, but there is a familiarity or resonance with. And so, yes, oftentimes when, when I have a client who has been in a narcissistic relationship, then we look at their childhood and the messages they got in childhood and we recognize how they had that same role with a parent or somebody in childhood that that gave them that resonance that made them jump into that relationship or fall into that relationship and not be able to get out. We also have to look at how in some ways when we are in that in those roles of placating, peacekeeping and people pleasing that we set in motion uh, some some dysfunctional aspects of the relationship early on. And that's where I really encourage people to to stop the the three P's, because when you set that in motion early in the relationship, you're really undermining yourself and you're really telling that person that you don't need to fully exist in that relationship. And that's not fair to yourself. And it's also not setting that relationship up for success. So if you start a relationship by people pleasing and placating and peacekeeping, then you're setting this whole thing in motion where everything's about them and you just show up for them and you don't have any needs or wants or thoughts or feelings or anything like that. And then, you know, six months down the line when you're miserable, then they're clueless because you haven't said anything so far. So if that's the case and your person really isn't a terrible person, they just have kind of gotten into this type of relationship with you. What's important is to start showing up for yourself, stop undermining yourself, and then see what happens. Because if you tell the truth and you show up with your whole thoughts, feelings, wants, needs, everything, and that person responds and says, yeah, okay, great. Let's do that. Let's do this differently. I I hear you. That's great. That's you setting boundaries and the other person respecting your boundaries. If you start doing those kinds of things and setting boundaries and showing up and being authentic and they start escalating and saying, no, you are not allowed to fully exist in this relationship, then you know that that relationship is doomed and that's not healthy for you to be in it. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> you choked me up with that truth. Okay. <laughs> Out of the fog into the clear. What inspired you to write the book, the journaling book? Out of the fog into the clear. Explain that concept to me. 
So the the FOG is an acronym, um, fear of, of fear, obligation, and guilt, and it describes the the experience of being lost in a relationship like this. And and um, because I'm a lifelong sailor, I really took to this an uh, acronym and the analogy, and I really ran with it and um, and had a lot of fun with it because. It, it really does describe that feeling if you've ever been in an abusive relationship and I have in my late teens and early twenties and it, you just don't know which way's up. You can't see through the fog. You can't figure out which way out. And, um, and you're blaming yourself. You're shaming yourself. You're just lost. Um, so it's really a great acronym, the fear, obligation, and guilt. And it's a great um, analogy because you feel so lost. Now, when you get clarity, and at first, the only way to get clarity is through um, looking at the facts. So I talked about the rational mind versus the emotional mind, which is you know, trauma bonded and fully attached to this person. So when you look at the facts, I don't feel good about myself since I've been in this relationship. My life's gone downhill. Um, that person separated me from all my people. I don't, you know, I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I'm, everything's gone downhill. So when you look at the facts and, you know, sometimes facts come as a result of a crisis. So, you know, they did this, this, and this, and they said this, this, and this, and that's atrocious. And I can't tolerate that. So journaling helps you write it down, helps you stay accountable to that because typically you fall back into the fog after the crisis is over. And you can pretty quickly say, well, it's not that bad. And they apologized and no, <laughs> no, you've got to stay focused on the facts. So it's like a radar. And if, um, you know, as a sailor, you have this radar and if you're lost in the fog, then you got to look at the radar screen and it's just these weird squiggly green lines, but you've got to follow those and say, okay, that is a rock there. And that is the shoreline there. And this is the channel. And I need to steer based on this radar, even though it doesn't feel right. It feels weird. It's scary to trust that, but I have to steer based on the facts. And that's the same way getting out of this relationship. You've got to look at the facts and stay focused on the facts and then steer into the safe harbor based on those facts. Indeed, indeed. Out of the fog into the clear journaling to help you heal from toxic relationships. Journaling has saved my life on more than one occasion um, when I was, well, we won't talk about the military experience, but yeah, anyways, journaling has saved my life on more than one occasion. Um, this book, this tool, you know, you are a number one bestseller, you know, based on it. A tool that you use in your practice, I would assume. You see the benefits of it and, you know, tell us about, you know, what made you say, these tools I give in sessions are good let me give them a tool that they can take home and do in between sessions. Cause what does the, where does the real work begin in between sessions? Right? Yeah. I've always been that kind of therapist that I give lots of homework. <laughs> I'm kind of a, let's, let's get on with this kind of a person. Um, you know, I think I, 
uh, you know, I did my training in, in the eighties when a, a lot of therapy was just kind of like, let's talk for the next seven years and we'll just support the person and, and not give any kind of clue as to how to get out of this pickle that they're in. And I just, that always rubbed me the wrong way. I wanted tools. I wanted to give tools. I wanted to, to find strategies, you know, when DBT came along and CBT came along, those were, those were my, my people, <laughs> you know, cause it, yeah, it was just so weird to me that, um, sort of that Rogerian just hang out and talk thing, um, just seems so strange to me. So I've always been a very action oriented therapist. Uh, let's get the work done and let's dive in both feet. Um, and, uh, and and do strategies so so when i when i was doing my youtube channel and um and so many people were asking me so many questions about narcissistic and other toxic relationships and how to get free and how to move forward and i was doing videos about that but a 10 minute video really doesn't do justice to all of the hard work that goes into getting free so i felt like i had to pull it all together into a book and it was very very hard to even face that thought because it's so hard to to sit down and write a book. But um, I decided I needed to do that, and I wanted it to be very action oriented and and to help somebody who didn't have access to a good therapist to get free. So I um, pulled it all together into a book and put it out there. And you know, I I've used it with all my clients, and and they've all gotten a lot out of it and really liked it. So, um, I think it, I think it, it had sort of a test group. <laughs> Boundaries is something else I want to talk about. I found that many clinicians, many clients tend to have issues with boundaries. How do we create and maintain them with people who don't respect them? Let me give you an example. <laughs> <laughs> Many clinicians are people pleasers. Well, you know, they want to be the helping person. So we have to say people pleasers. Many people, many clients that present find themselves in distress because they are people pleasers, either for their family or their loved ones or for others. And then when they find that it's not reciprocated oftentimes, they become distressed or when they give too much and not pouring out too much and not receiving, they become distressed and sometimes present with us with anxiety or depression or, you know, any other diagnosis. Um, how do we create and maintain boundaries, especially for those who don't respect them? I think we have to first and foremost know ourselves and, and have respect for ourselves. And we have to, like I said before, speak our truth. We have to know what we think and feel. We have to be willing to express ourselves. And when we do that, then we are fully showing up in our full authentic selves. And then setting boundaries is about what I'm willing to, how I, as a boundary in its most simplest form is how I take care of myself in any given relationship. And so I find that people typically take care of themselves poorly in all of their relationships. So, you know, typically we'll start off with a partner relationship and then we'll see that, well, 
you know, they don't have boundaries with their kids. They don't have boundaries with their work partners. They don't have boundaries with, you know, their friends even. So it becomes a, um, a full um, renovation, if you will, of, of their entire um, relationship strategy system with everybody. So it's about being in your authentic self and then uh, stating what you will and, you know, won't put up with in a relationship. So, it, you know, if you're expressing of yourself and somebody's disrespectful of you, then you have to set that boundary and say, well, you know, when you're being disrespectful, when you're being loud or or rude or cussing or any of those things, I'm going to hang up the phone and we can talk again later or we can try again tomorrow or I'll talk to you next week or I'm going to leave the house or, you know, what have you. So I think in its ideal form, we set boundaries in small ways first and then see what happens. So if you set a boundary like that and someone respects that boundary, then that's great. And if they don't respect that boundary, then you have to set it more strongly or for a longer period of time. In a sense, when someone is disrespecting you, they're having in a, in a way, kind of a tantrum. So I think of it, I think of boundaries as oftentimes amounting to a grown up timeout. So if you hang up on somebody and then, you know, you talk to them again the next day and they are more respectful or apologetic or what have you, then that boundary worked. Or if you leave the house um, or, or anything like that, and then there's some remorse and there's some um, change, then that's great. If there's no respect and if that person even escalates, then what they, then the boundary still worked because it showed you that you really are not allowed to fully exist in that relationship. And so, you know, that that is not a healthy relationship for you. So it worked either because it, it forced them to be respectful of you or it worked because it showed you this relationship is not viable. Um, so you have to recognize that and say, I need to fully exist in all of my relationships. I'm not willing to continue in a relationship where I don't. And so therefore this relationship is not viable. Indeed, indeed. Mm. Thank you, Miss Shannon. You know, everything you're saying is just so crystal clear. Speaking of clear, that's an acronym. <laughs> Why don't you tell us about it? <laughs> well, the C stands for clarity. And that was what I was talking about in terms of the, the facts, you know, staying focused on the facts and getting that clarity. And sometimes that clarity has to come from other people. So I know when I was in a negative relationship, other people were trying to tell me about that and I didn't want to hear it, didn't want to hear it. And then at some point I was open to hearing it. So I think clarity can come from other people. It can also come, like I said, from a crisis. And then when you write those facts down, then that gives you that clarity and it gives you that channel, um, that radar screen, green squiggly line channel to sail into harbor. Um, you also have a lot of stuff to learn about and you want to educate yourself and you want to grow your awareness. And then R stands for rebuilding. 
So rebuilding is the most important piece after you get out of that relationship, because actually I have clients who have been out and listeners on my YouTube channel too, um, that have been out of their relationship for years and years, and they are still just as much in distress as they were when they were in the relationship. So they're emotionally um, still attached. Emotionally, they haven't left and they haven't repaired and rebuilt um, their sense of self and their sense of connectedness and their their entire their entire lives because a lot of times you have to recognize that when you're in this kind of relationship that person insists that their thoughts feelings wants needs matter yours don't so your your entire attention is constantly on them you're noticing their every mood their every emotion their every every up and down and you're placating and peacekeeping them like crazy just to keep them calm and keep them mellow. So when that person is no longer there, there's this huge gap, this huge emptiness, and you can miss them terribly and also feel lost without them. So you're at high risk of going back. You're at high risk of being sucked back in. And you're also having to deal with that emptiness in a better way than going back. So you need to completely revamp and rebuild your sense of self because it's gotten completely lost and twisted in this other person. You have to look at your character qualities and your values and who you are as a real person. And that's a, that's a whole journey in and of itself. And I journal, have a bunch of journal prompts around that process because rebuilding your sense of self is critical. You cannot move forward into your life in a healthy way unless you completely rebuild your sense of self. So then you need to rebuild your connectedness because they've separated you from all your people. And you may need to build new people and a new, a new, um, group of people because sometimes that toxic person takes off with all your people you know that they get bought in with that person and you're lost and you're left behind so you may need to rebuild a new set of people and then you have to rebuild everything like your new goals your new you know career maybe um a lot of different things have kind of gone by the wayside and it's time for you to rebuild all of that so uh, it's a it's an entire process and that's why you know i really felt like i had to write an entire book about it and do a ton of journaling prompts and i know some people hate journaling and they're not going to do that but the journal prompts give you a personal view of yourself as you're walking through them and so you don't actually have to write them all out if you don't want to but i think they do help guide you through the process Indeed, that was very clear. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> A quick commercial break. Okay. How to continue the talk with your friend about their mental health after you ask about how they were feeling. Put down that phone. Do it. Nobody's texting you. The hardest thing with mental health is it becomes a spiral. And sometimes all you literally need is a little catalyst to like help you to stop. When I'm in pain or when I'm suffering, like I have a really hard time reaching out and asking for help. 
I know it's so hard to talk about mental health, but when you don't talk about it, you feel more isolated, you feel more alone. If you feel something in your gut, if you feel something's wrong, you should, you know, talk to them about that. Sometimes starting a conversation with someone about their mental health can seem awkward, but your support can make a huge difference. And I think that that's hopeful in those like really dark times. You might not know what to say, but there are a lot of things you can say to open things up. I know you're going through some stuff, and I want you to know I'm here. You know, I deal with the same issues as well. Maybe it's me, but I was wondering if you're all right. Learn more about how to start the conversation at SeizeTheAwkward.org. All right, all right, and welcome back to More Than Therapy podcast, featuring our special guest, Shannon Petrovich. Shannon, what other tools, strategies, words of advice you can give us before we close out this very, very empowering and educational broadcast? Well, I think once you do a lot of this work, the idea is that you have a really solid creepometer, that's what I call it, or a narcissistometer, maybe. So that you, if you feel really good within yourself, if you've revamped and retooled your entire sense of self, you've got new people and you've got your life on track, then when someone toxic or, you know, self-centered or narcissistic comes along, you really, you get them immediately. And if you're ready to sort of step back and watch somebody and watch people's actions, don't jump in on what they say, really watch their actions. Because people are generally either wired kind of narcissistically, self-centeredly, or they're kind of wired really empathically, compassionately. And you definitely don't want to hang with the, the first group because again, you won't get to fully exist in that relationship. So you want to hang with people who are more compassionate, more empathic, and you can see that in all their actions. People who are more self-centered and more superficial tend to laugh at other people's um, pain. They tend to, you know, be all about themselves and be puffing themselves up and be needing everybody to puff them up all the time. They tend to you know, need things to focus around them. And if it doesn't focus on them, then they get irritable and pissed off. Um, and they tend to, you know, treat other people unkindly, non-empathically. So you can see all those things right away if you are not in your people-pleasing, placating mood, mode. And so it's extremely important to kind of go into new relationships with your eyes wide open um, don't jump into intimacy too quickly because that derails your wise mind. It derails your rational mind and it gets you sucked into a relationship much too quickly. So, you know, step back, watch the circus go by. Don't jump into the monkey's cage with them and uh, take really good care of yourselves. Indeed, indeed. Well, people can check you out at your website, No Foggy Days. Is that correct? That's right. NoFoggyDays.com is my landing page, and it has the link to my book, and it has the um, <laughs> oh, cool. Uh, it has the uh, YouTube channel, which is Therapist Talks, 
and I do live streams every other week and people can jump in and uh, people do jump in from all over the world, which is really kind of amazing to me. I uh, just want people not to feel alone, not to fall into despair and to know that, that they're not alone, that people have been through this too. And if you're not wired that way, if you are more compassionate, more empathic, you tend to be really baffled by these kinds of people. So um, you, like I said, you're not alone. So yeah, and subscribe to my newsletter and there's all my other social media things, <laughs> which is really weird. Um, never saw myself as being all connected to all the social media stuff, but there you go. <laughs> It's a very clean and clear sight. <laughs> it didn't used to be. <laughs> my stepson redid it because he said it, mine was a hot mess. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's his doing. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Well, you know, he, he did it out of love. He did. Hot mess. He fixed it. Clear sight, you know, to get the information they need in order mm -hmm. for them to succeed. Can you dig it? Exactly. Exactly. Well, so thanks please, for Lord, having me. Thank you for being a guest on the Morning Therapy Podcast. Please go to the website, No Foggy Days. And if you're, um, if you're looking at the podcast, look in the show notes, you'll see her other um, links. You'll see a link to her book and her other social medias. But, you know, you can get a lot of that information directly from her website at no foggy days that's no foggy days.com <laughs> thank like you chris it. i appreciate it thank you thank you be well and be great and if you haven't already please subscribe to the morning therapy podcast featuring interviews and quotes of the day and special guests like today's special guest shannon petrovich if you haven't already if you have a special guest behind you <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, um, and that ends this episode of the Morning Therapy Podcast. Be well and be great. Thanks. Hey, boss. Okay. I said I'm fine. Really, really hard for me.